Talking God with Uncle Luke. Dad's rock. Come on in. Let's check this out. Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 19. All the bubbles of the world. We got one mission in mind. Welcome to the Bublical Channel. Always glad somebody's showing up because here at the Bublical Channel, we are absolutely convinced that the chamois of life is wrung out best whenever you just start talking to God and you start talking God in a way that God talks God. That's what the Bible's all about. They get us talking God in a way in a way that just makes sense. So anyhow, it's for all Bubba's of the world. I'm just a Bubba. You're just a Bubba. It's for the Bubba's of the world to get together so that we can sharpen our swords a bit here to read your Bible, to say your prayers, to get together, to talk gods, to, you know, move away from the bullshit to the holy shit so that we can start shooting the shit in a way that makes sense to God. Last thing we want is God to scratch his head and say, what are you talking about, man? Anyhow, it's really quite simple. You know, the characters in the Bible are all peasants and, you know, hillbillies, rednecks, things of this nature, even Miss Mary, uh, Jesus' mom, who says that her soul magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And that's just where we want to be, man. We want to get ourselves to that place where we can talk like Mary talks and understand what's going on. Anywho, let's jump on in and see our great passage here. We have Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 19. And if we remember backwards uh, just a little bit, uh, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He's specifically in the temple, and Jesus has been challenged. Uh, we looked at this last week. Go back and check it out if you don't remember. But uh, he challenged uh, everybody, and uh, you know, just by being there, kind of you know, doing a few things and starting to teach, and then he was challenged. He was challenged because they, the people um, or the religious leaders wanted to know what authority he was doing these things in. And Jesus turned the table back on them like he always does. And he said, you tell me if John's authority, John the Baptist, if his authority was from heaven or from man. You answer me that, I'll answer, I'll answer you your question, Jesus says. And they say, no, we're not going to answer that. Um, and Jesus says, why ain't answering you either? But he does give an answer. And this is the answer. So this is the parable uh, Jesus tells this parable, but he's telling it in the temple scene, and this is the answer. So he said, I'm not going to answer your question. But then he goes and tells everybody this parable that they can hear as well, and this is an answer to their question. So let's just hear what Jesus' answer is to them with this parable. Um, and the parable goes like this. There was a man who planted a vineyard, and he let it out. He rented it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long time. Once again, Jesus is telling them, what the situation of God is all about. Yeah, it feels like God's away, but he is still the rightful owner and very interested in what's going on. Anyhow, okay, let's just keep reading. He said, when the time came, he sent his servants to the ten tenants that he rented it out to. And, uh, you know, they were supposed to pay the rents. And they, well, they beat them and they sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, and they beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one, they also, they wounded this one. And they it really, you know, really roughed up this guy, and they cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, okay, enough's enough. What shall I do? I'll send my son. I'll send my son, my beloved son, I'll send my beloved son, and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants 
saw him. When the renters saw him, they said to themselves, well, this is the heir. So let's just kill him so that the inheritance might be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Woo, Jesus says. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? (laughs) Well, he's going to come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, the audience hears this, specifically the religious leaders. They hear this and they say, surely not. What then, Jesus said, is written. So Jesus returns by saying, what then is this that is written? And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. They, meaning the religious leaders, um, wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, meaning they wanted to rough him up and uh, or arrest him or do whatever, uh, because they knew the parable was against them, and they feared the people. So they didn't do nothing. Okay, end scene. There's Uncle Luke uh, telling us a great story that Jesus played it out. And so Uncle Luke is just telling us the story as Jesus played it out, laid it out, so that we could understand it. So let's go backwards and understand this thing. And let's just um, let's just hit it from, from the most elementary of perspectives, our modern-day perspectives. What does this parable really you know, mean to me? Well, before we get to what it means to me, let's just, you know, look at the very sim- simple idea that Jesus is conveying here. He is saying to the people who are Israel, he is saying that God has put you in charge of his land or his vineyard. That's what he means by that. And he keeps sending his messengers, he keeps sending his servants and you keep rejecting them. Now, remember this. Jesus has already told the religious leaders that Israel's bad habit, Israel's history, has been rejecting the message of the prophets. And by rejecting the message of the prophets, they even killed some of the prophets. And so this is the habit of God to keep sending his messengers and his servants to Israel And the leadership of Israel has a history of not listening and worse yet, treating them shamefully. And so this is clearly a parable designed to catch their attention. And Jesus is saying, this is you and this is me. And who is me? Jesus says, well, I am not a messenger. I am not a servant. I am the son. I am the son of the owner. Now, this, you know, it, it, this is how Jesus is telling his story. He's saying, you want to know where my authority comes from? My authority comes from the actual owner as the owner because I'm the son of the owner. Pretty simple logic. And what he says to them is he said, if, if, if you're going to kill the son, then, then this is all going to be taken away from you and, and the owner is going to give it to somebody else. And they say, no way. So it's not that they don't understand. They understand it clearly. So the last verse that we read makes it you know, obvious that they understood it clearly and they are rejecting it completely. They are rejecting this idea. They are, they're saying, we are not 
We are not in the wrong with God. God may be the owner, but we're not in the wrong with God. And you're not the son that God is sending. We reject the whole thing. And Jesus says, oh, yeah. Well, and he drops in two statements from the Old Testament that we need to, you know, kind of uncover to go back and sort out what is Jesus really meaning. But let's not do that quite yet. And let's just gather in. What do we take away from this in our modern day hearing? Because we're not Israelites. So what does this have to do with us? Well, what it has to do with us is that while this parable may be directed specifically at the Israelites, it's really directed at, it's directed at the Israelites and their, 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 you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, is, is that God has punished them and he's allowed Rome to take over the promised land. Um, that's already happened and they know that. Um, but at a modern level, it brings us to the reality that the whole world is actually God's. And the whole world is renting this space from God. We are all renters. We are all tenants of God's creation. He's the proper owner. Nobody on earth is the proper owner. We may have property ownership and all of that, and that's nice, and that's neat, and I love it too, but we're only playing pretend. We're only playing house. We're like kids playing house. We're, we're you know, uh, you know, trying to mimic what the adults are doing. We're only trying to mimic what God actually does. And he is the proper owner of the whole entire world. And the whole entire world is still in this condition. The whole entire world complains that we don't, you know, you know, we don't know anything about God because he never turns up. The Bible says a different story. And that is that God does turn up. The problem is not that God doesn't turn up. The problem is not that God has not made himself known. The problem is that we are jerks. We're a bunch of jerks. Absolutely. That's the main message. And, and that, um, you know, we reject the prophets, just like Israel rejected the prophets. And we reject the Christ, like Israel rejected the Christ, who is the son. So the parable works you know, both to Israel specifically in Jesus' day, but it also works in the wider world today. We are still fantastic as human beings at rejecting the message that God is bringing to us, the servants that God has brought to us. Um, we are fabulous at just throwing it all out and saying, nah, no way. So that's the basic thrust of the parable. But we want to do better than just getting the hillbilly version of it and what it means to me and and really what it means, you know, what if we get a sense of what Jesus is saying, then we need to drop down to our knees and 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 fall on our face and say, truly, you are God. I am sorry. I need to get on board with your forgiveness. You are truly the God of gods and you are the Lord of kings. That's what we need to do when we realize that we're on God's world. I, I love a meme that, uh, you know, I, I kind of pass along on Facebook that, that had a picture of the galaxy, the Milky Way, you know, and said, hey, relax, man, we're, we are here, you know, and it's this tiny, you don't even know what planet, it, you can't even tell there's a planet in this, you know, gargantuan thing, the Milky Way. The fact of the matter is, is we should be terrified at our existence. We should be terrified that we are this little speck in a galaxy in a, in a Milky Way that's, you know, undeterminable. And we should be absolutely on our knees, you know, trying to get right with the one who made this whole place. And that's what the Bible's trying to tell us. God's the creator, man. 
We're not. We know that. We know that we're not the creator. God is. And we should fall on our knees and say, I'm sorry, God, I got to get this thing right. And I should be living in this place like you intended me to live. That's the simple hillbilly version. But the Bible works in an incredible way. Uh, the Bible works in a way that, you know, it has a depth and it has a way of telling a story that no human being has ever been able to tell a story because the story that the Bible shapes up is a story that that brings a message from God through human beings who, who reject the message of God, but at the same time, they end up doing God's will and bringing the story forward. And that's the story of Israel. That's the story of, of the Christians, you know, an early Christian community. It's the story of the whole Bible. It still works out the same exact way. So anyhow, Jesus gives an answer that's worth our time to, you know, try to wrestle with and to try to, you know, make a connection into big history. One of the reasons I like being a Christian is that it gives me an identity that connects me as a human being, not to being Irish. Good Lord, the Irish are a bunch of dumbasses, you know? No, it connects me to a history of humanity that has a, has a beginning with God. So that gives me an identity that makes me feel good. And so when I go back into the Old Testament, it's not to, you know, make me feel stupid. It's to enlighten me and to help me to see the history that God had in mind, the intention that God has in mind for his people. Um, and, and what he has in mind for this whole planet. And so the first part of Jesus' answer to these smart alecks is that, hey, fellas, um, what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, that is a specific quote from Psalm 118, uh, somewhere uh, in the middle. You know, so if you want to check it out yourself, I encourage you to do so. Go read it. It's a fantastic psalm. But Israel's existence uh, when this psalm was written, which is probably right around King David, King Solomon, sometime in there, was, was you know, they were in the promised land. Everything was really going well at this point. And, and the idea that God had given them, they got it. And Psalm 118 gathers in the idea that Israel had, and that is that God was doing something very cool with them that God was actually doing something with them that was truly unique that none of the other nations had ever even dreamed possible. And that is the true God who made the world was actually messaging and, and relating to people in a way that was supposed to be inviting the rest of the nations in. And so Israel understood themselves to be unique. Israel understood themselves to be not like the other nations. And Psalm 118 is this super you know, positive, you know, psalm. And a lot of churches, you know, the early church really focused in on the psalm because it's super positive. You know, it goes like this, um, you know, praise be to God for our Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. Um, it goes on like this. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. Sounds like Mary talking. That's because she understood Psalm 118 very well. And she said, I shall not die, but I will live. And the Lord has disciplined me severely, which was Israel's history. He had disciplined them severely, but he's not given me over to death. So 
open to me the gates of righteousness, the psalm says, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You hear that? That's what Jesus used to answer their question. They said, no, 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 no. The vineyard, you just told a parable that does not apply to us and it does not apply to you. And he said, yes, it does. Go back and read Psalm 118 because Israel's, you know, chief, you know, in a thousand BC, that's when Psalm 118 would have been written. Israel's self-perspective was that they were something truly unique in the planet. That's why this Psalm says the stone that the builders rejected has become the best stone possible, which is the cornerstone. It's the arch stone. It's the first stone. It's all the stones. It's the best stone possible. But what the message here that Israel understood in Psalm 118 is that God was not making Israel like the other nations. He was making them to be in a real relationship with him that recognized God as the author of righteousness, that God was the author of their salvation, that God was the one, the only one who had brought them to this place and that they were quite different than the rest of the nations. Okay. So that's what this means, that they, Israel celebrated that the stone was them that the rest of the nations had rejected. They celebrated the fact that they were rejects as far as the nations were concerned. They celebrated the fact that what the nations thought you know, was silly in what Israel had, that God had made the most important. Okay, so that's a very special, it's very tender, it's very uplifting, you know, and the psalm is very uplifting like this, but Jesus is dropping that quote into them as, you know, kind of a, a guilt statement saying, you are the ones off base. The rest of what Jesus says about the stumbling of the stone and the falling of the stone and the crushing of the stone is kind of a mashing together of two other references one comes from the book of Isaiah or the prophet Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 11 to 15. And another one comes from Daniel, another prophet in chapter 2, verse 44 to like 46. Um, and so fast forward, you know, that Psalm 118 is in about 1000 BC. Fast forward a couple hundred years and the prophet Isaiah is, is like, he's pumping the message. He's saying, Israel... You have got to learn this lesson. You are off track. You are becoming like the nations. You're not influencing the nations. You're not bringing the nations into you. You're becoming like the nations. And so the prophet Isaiah gives this huge warning to Israel that if you don't get your act together, things are not going to go well. God's going to kick you out of the promised land, which we know he does. So here's what the prophet Isaiah says. The Lord has spoken thus to me with his strong hand upon me saying, don't call conspiracy what the other people call conspiracy and don't fear what they fear. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord of hosts, it's him that you should be honoring as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he is going to end up becoming a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So you see where Jesus is going with this.
Pharisees. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that you were made by God to carry a special message. And Jesus is saying, I am the special message. You keep rejecting the special message. And, and God has punished you for rejecting the special message, but you're supposed to understand this. And, and then he shifts the metaphor over to the rock of, you know, stumbling and the rock that will crush them. And he said, and, and so Isaiah had said to Israel that God is no longer going to be unique, is no longer unique to you because you're, you're just listening to the conspiracies. You're just listening to what the other nations around you fear, and you're going along with everything they say. And Isaiah, this is a huge warning. He's saying, he's saying that the, the the good old stone, the good old cornerstone that that the rest of the nations have rejected, is 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 now you. You're rejecting that that illustrious cornerstone that we used to, that that we're supposed to be singing about. You're the one who is giving up or rejecting God. And now this stone is 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 running the risk of becoming an offense to both houses of Israel, which means that by now Israel has already split, which is not God's idea. Um, Solomon's sons were, were jerks, um, and they split the kingdom into the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. But the warning of, of Isaiah in the mid-700s B.C. was that the very thing that God called you to be, this cornerstone, a stone that the rest of the nations rejected, you yourselves are now rejecting that special place that God has, you know, put you in. And consequently, you know, the, you know, God himself is causing you to stumble and fall and to be broken because you're rejecting God. You see, God can't allow you to live in this land, says the prophet Isaiah, if you're going to be like the rest of the nations, if you're not going to bring the nations to you, then God can't have you there either. And, we know that historically, that's exactly what happens. The northern ten tribes are sacked by the Assyrians. The southern two tribes are going to be sacked by the Babylonians. And that's where the next verse com comes in. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 to 46. Daniel um, is part of the, the, the portion of Israel that gets deported to Babylon. And so Daniel is sitting in Babylon now. You know, Israel has been defeated by the Assyrians and now Babylon. And, and, and what's, what's really happened is, is that, you know, you know, in all of this, um, Daniel is, is sitting there probably like boohoo. Oh man, this sucks. And the King of Babylon is, is being driven crazy with this nightmare or a dream, whatever you might want to call it. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and word gets around that Daniel is quite talented at interpreting dreams. And so the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, reaches out and says, bring that dude to me. I want to hear, I want to hear what he has to say. And Daniel says, yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar, I'll tell you what your dream means. And so one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about is this big rock that wasn't cut by any human hands. It was a massive rock taken out of a mountainside that ends up crushing everything. And Daniel's, you know, this is where Daniel's speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, yeah, man, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone 
was cut from the mountain by no human hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made, no, made known uh, this, you king. Um, and, 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 and then Nebuchadnezzar's like, are you kidding me? He gets it. He's like, oh, that means your God is the God of all gods. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. Nebuchadnezzar falls upon his face and says, truly, your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. What do I do? So it's a really touching kind of moment that the enemy, you know, hears Daniel giving these words. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's a nincompoop as well. He's not going to, you know, but, but, but he at least gets it in the moment. And, and so Jesus is also bringing this back to him saying, listen, the big picture of God is that he called you Israel to be different than the rest of the nations. The warnings that he gave you to the prophets were that you are becoming like the other nations, not different from the other nations. And that the big message of God to all the nations of the world is that God is going to eventually have to crush all of the nations of the world who are in rebellion against him. And so that's this, you know, stone motif, the, you know, God's rock, so to speak. You know, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about God's rock. So the fact of the matter is, is the parable, go back to the parable. The parable reveals something very, very incredible about God that Jesus has already explained in other parables. And that is that, is that God has this unbelievable patience with humanity. Whether it's Israel shaking their puny fists at God and not listening to the prophets, or whether it's us today as the rest of the world shaking our puny little fists and laughing at God, God has this incredible patience to put up with the creation that he has made, us, you know, and, and, and to not just wipe us off the planet, but... What Jesus is also portraying here and what the Old Testament portrayed is that there will come a day where dad's rock, dad rocks, you know, with his, with his patience, but dad rocks because one day the nonsense, just like a good dad will do, one day the nonsense has to be stopped. And that's the message that Jesus has. God is incredibly patient, but one day the nonsense has to stop. That's the Bible story of God through history. That's the Bible story that is, you know, very unique to the Bible and the Bible alone. That is, you know, the history, you know, that God has presented you know, to us in many different ways through the, through the life of Israel and through the life of Jesus Christ, that, that we are the ones who, you know, just don't respond to God the way that we should and that God has made it all. And so this, this history that the Bible gives us is truly unmatched by any religion. No religion works this way, trying to, or, you know, developing a storyline through history. And, and no religion also marvels, you know, in the way that the Bible should be marveled at, you know, with the generosity of God. At the end of it all, um, dad's rock, our father who is in heaven, his rock is Jesus. And that rock just like, you know, Psalm 118, you know, says is rejected, but it's actually marvelous. And, and that rock of Jesus Christ that our father has given to the world is also a toe catcher. It does, it's, you know, Jesus still makes people stumble. It's crazy. It's stupid. 
I was part of the, you know, the, the goofy crowd, you know, for a long time, not anymore, but I used to be and that rock dad's rock. Our father who is in heaven, his rock, who is Jesus Christ, his son is also the crusher. Jesus Christ is the rock that will crush. Jesus Christ is the rock that Daniel foresaw that would crush the nations, that would crush it all. The nonsense will stop when Jesus returns. Yes, just like the parable gives way. It seems like God might be absent, but he is not absent. He is coming back, and when he comes back, the nonsense has to be stopped. The good news, the good news is that the death of Jesus Christ, the death of the Son, is actually part of God's patience once again to liberate this world, to bring us into a great relationship with God. You see, Psalm 2 gives us God's real perspective, and that is, why do the nations nations plot in vain and rebel against God and his anointed? Hmm, That's God's perspective. Why do y'all keep rebelling against me? And God's perspective is also that this whole entire world is our Father, who is in heaven's vineyard. It's his. It's not ours. And we need to wise up. And we need to, like Nebuchadnezzar, fold down on our faces and say, God of gods, Lord of all kings, have mercy on me, like that blind beggar did. And God will have mercy on us. And get it, get into the business of being the people that God called us to be. All right, that's what we got for you. We will catch you next time. Thank you.